When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. For the next 40 minutes, we're examining one of Ireland's largest and most influential institutions, namely the civil service. Today, the civil service employs some 60,000 people. It handles multi-billion pound government budgets and it deals with hundreds of thousands of inquiries from the public each year. And of course, that's not all. Our civil servants represent us abroad, they advise our ministers and they provide the vital continuity between successive governments. So it's hardly surprising that our civil service is described as a central core of power and as a vital cog in the machine of economic development and growth. But the question is, is our civil service healthy and well, or is it now in need of radical reform? Well, the critics say that reform is essential. They argue that the institution is too unwieldy, too conservative and too inefficient. And later we'll be hearing more about those views. But to understand the civil service at all, it's important to take it right back to the beginning. In fact, to the origins of the system we inherited. It was, of course, a British system, and its development can be traced to the mid-19th century. At that stage, with the creation of various departments and boards by the British, the civil service was truly born. And then, by independence in 1922, our fledgling state acquired the already established remnant of British colonial rule. Tom Barrington of the Institute of Public Administration. By the time we got our independence in 1922, we had a fully, elaborate, a fully elaborated uh, civil service, very unlike, say the, say, the African countries that got independence in the 60s. We had a, a, a complete machinery of government here at that time, so far as the civil service was concerned, and there were about 20,000 civil servants employed, partly in ministries, partly in branches of English ministries, and partly in what we would now call state-sponsored bodies. So, by the 1920s, we already had a fairly large civil service, and the essential framework for its activities was already established. Now, the fact is that this system was based on the British model, so we could ask if our inherited system in the 1920s was suited to our special needs. Well, the, the common thing was we, we imported, as it were, an imperial civil service for a, a, a poor republic. I'm not sure that that's, that's necessarily so. What we did get, though, were the great advantages the British civil service had of kind of commitment to work and clear-headedness and, and general honesty and concern for public service. Uh, I think these advantages outweighed any of the other disadvantages. But the trouble is that we didn't really look into the question of how we would organize the thing to our own our own needs and we didn't know we didn't have the conception of the civil service as being a development agency until perhaps the thirties or later. And so we didn't organize ourselves for that kind of thing. Clearly then, on the one hand, there was an honesty and integrity associated with public employment, but on the other hand, there was also a difficulty in that our institutions were not designed for furthering growth. In fact, the truth is that our civil service was already geared to the smooth running of everyday mundane affairs, but it had a few ideas of how to plan a grand scheme of things for the future. 
And it was with that inherent confusion that the civil service developed in the 20s and 30s. But then, of course, came the 40s and the war, a period of national emergency which brought a new enthusiasm and vigour. That may, meant big changes, of course, in uh, places like the Department of Industry and Commerce, the part of which broke off to become the Department of Supplies, the Department of Defence, of course. The Department of Supplies was the great experience of people who worked under Lamas and John Layden at the height of their powers, with a group of very gifted civil servants around them. And uh, a lot of the older people looked back, even though they had to work terribly hard in those days, with great pleasure and joy in the excitement of working uh, in that milieu. And with that enthusiasm as a background, the civil service entered the post-war period. Now, it developed in that era, but it didn't experience any significant growth. After all, this was a period of stagnation, namely that dreaded decade of the late 40s and 50s. It was a time of high unemployment and the emigrant ship, so it's hardly surprising that our government machine simply ticked over. But then came the end of the 50s, a brand new era when the green light for industrial development was signalled by the government. And our new focus on industrialisation was to have major implications for our civil servants. The big uh, change, of course, was the, was the plan or the, the, the first programme for economic expansion 1959. And that itself took a good while to cook up, as it were, to, uh, to get the notion of a proper capital investment and trying to get proper uh, priorities in the in the in the uh, expenditure of, of public resources and then to try to get a few more objectives clarified like turning our back on the notion of self-sufficiency and living in the beehive hut sort of thing and turning out towards the uh, whole idea of European unity and international trade. So, by the 1960s, the Irish Civil Service entered a new phase. It was an era of economic expansion and growth, bringing with it new demands and new pressures on state employees. There was also a new international focus, with foreign corporations entering our shores for the first time. And there was, of course, the added complication of preparing and negotiating our EEC membership. So it's a critical landmark in the development and progress of the Irish Civil Service. And to appreciate the problems today, one must first look at the cracks that began to appear in the Civil Service facade in the mid-1960s. As Joe Lee, Professor of Modern History in University College Cork, explains, problems were beginning to arise. Yes, I think they were emerging as, in a sense, they inevitably had to emerge with the accretion of work uh, that followed from the more activist approach that the civil service itself was adopting from the late 1950s. They were more pressing in some departments than others because some departments were more active than others. But it was inevitable that if your approach toward your job changes, if you are looking for things to do rather than hoping things won't happen, so to speak, that the old structures, which were based on the premise, remember since 1924, that the job of the civil service is to try to prevent government uh, from doing too much. Uh, and that was broadly the attitude of, I would say, the majority of civil servants. Certainly it was the attitude of the senior circles in the Department of Finance, that that government uh, is best which governs least. If you're going to change that, then inevitably those structures will not suffice for the more activist attitude now being adopted. Problems then for the civil service in the 1960s. In fact, essentially a difficulty with old, outdated structures that could hardly accommodate the new injection of dynamism. But the simple fact was that civil servants were faced with more work than ever before, and it quickly became clear that officials were becoming bogged down in the everyday details of running the government machine. 
Yes, I think that would be widely accepted. And again, it's partly inevitable. As institutions grow, uh, the decision-making structures in those institutions do not normally change pari passu with growth. What happens is senior decision-makers take more and more on themselves. They get overwhelmed by detail. They don't always have time to even step back and realise that that's happening. It becomes a, it's a gradual development. And before they know where they are, they don't have the time to stand back and ask, what's the problem? Uh, that led to conflict between what within departments and between departments who were sometimes pursuing not merely different but diametrically opposed policies, not out of choice, but because they had so little time to step back and ask what's happening on the, uh, 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 on the wider scenario. How is what we're doing um, relating to what other people are doing? Now, of course, it's the minister's responsibility, ultimately at cabinet, to try and, and resolve those ambiguities, but then the minister himself is frequently bogged down in detail also. By now then, work priorities in the civil service had clearly gone wrong. There was too much time spent on mundane affairs and not enough time to stand back and ask just what policies needed to be devised. But there was one point mentioned there, namely the role of the minister, and that was now to become an issue of special concern. As far as the law was concerned, the minister was responsible for all the actions and decisions of his staff. In fact, he was referred to in legal terms as the corporation's soul, which means simply that he was personally accountable for all his department's decisions. Now, that was a law dating back to 1924, but remember, these were the 60s, and the new work pressures made a mockery of the minister's responsibilities. It was no longer possible for ministers, if it ever had been, to uh, conform to the role of ministerial responsibility in full. Uh, there was now just too much happening. Uh, there was no way they could master every aspect of the work of their department. Uh, even if they wanted to, uh, many of them would not have had the technical ability or the technical competence to understand the actual nature of the work in the more technical areas. Uh, broadly speaking, their task now was to bring political judgment to bear on uh, the implications of the policies proposed by their expert advisers within the civil service. Uh, in addition, you must remember, of course, that ministers were becoming even more saturated into constituency matters in terms of re-election and so on. That is part of their task as a TD. It's part of the challenge that's presented to any TD in the Irish political system that they have to attend to constituency matters. And a great deal of minister's time, as of um, ordinary TD's time, has to be devoted to constituency matters. There is no way within a 24-hour day that by the mid-1960s uh, a minister in any major department could have combined his ministerial responsibility role with his TD representational role adequately. So, in short, ministerial responsibility had become a central problem in our public administration. But there were other problems as well, not the least being the difficulties now encountered in recruiting staff of the highest calibre. After all, this was a period of growth, and no longer did all the bright young school leavers look to the civil service for gainful employment. The civil service traditionally recruited many of the best brains in the country. It had done that almost effortlessly down to the late 1950s because there were so few other jobs around. I mean, where did a bright boy look? Uh, whether he was a bright leaving certificate student, whether he was a bright university graduate. Uh, I mean, unemployment was a, con was a perennial problem. Emigration was high. Uh, industry was not flourishing. There were some openings, but not very many. The civil service and the church, you could say, creamed off the best minds in the country. Now, that was in the late 1950s. Now, from the late 50s, of course, as industrialization began, 
it raised the problem of recruitment for the civil service because now suddenly, abruptly, uh, more openings were arising, either directly in industry or in the, the, the financial sectors and the professional sectors associated with it, so that it became a problem by the mid-60s that the civil service was not necessarily getting the pick of the brains which it had without even thinking about it in a sense uh, for the preceding 30 or 40 years. Now, the civil service manpower difficulties of the 60s weren't just confined to that problem. Already the service had developed a strict hierarchy of mobility and promotion, so it had become simply a case of taking your place in the grades and progressing accordingly. It all took time, it was all very rigid, and it was a dilemma that was now becoming all too apparent. I think there was an emerging problem, and there, there, there will always be problems in institutions that are ongoing, where people look forward to careers that maybe last 40 years. And I think that serious questions arise about promotion patterns in the civil service, whether in fact they are exploiting the talent they have recruited most effectively. Well, so much for these problems. In short, a difficulty in attracting the best talents and developing them properly. Also, of course, the new pressures of work for both ministers and staff, and most importantly, the inadequate structures caught unawares by the new economic growth and development. So it was clear that something needed to be done, and the solution was to be a commission of inquiry established in 1966. The subsequent document was to be known as the Devlin Report, named after its author, St. John Devlin. And one of the commission's members was Tom Barrington, who explains the motive behind the inquiry. The reason why the Devlin Inquiry was set up to look into the operation of the civil service at the higher levels was a concern at that time that somehow or other the planning system was not developing up to its next stage and that the, the, uh, the quality of government was uh, beginning to decline from the peak it had reached. Three years later, in 1969, the Devlin Report was finally published. It recommended that the process of government could be improved if ministers and their senior officials were freed to concentrate on policy matters. At the same time, everyday work should be entrusted to units which would now be given full responsibility for their decisions and actions. What that would mean in practical terms, Devlin said, was firstly the establishment of the AROCT, or Central Ministry, within a department, with responsibility for top-level policy formulation. And secondly, there would be executive units which would carry out established policy. Finally, it recommended the setting up of a department of the public service, and it had comments to make as well on staff mobility and better staff training. So it was a fairly comprehensive and significant document, but how were the recommendations received at the time? They were well received. We in uh, the Institute here uh, thought it was expedient to run a sort of an expository uh, series of meetings. We had six public lectures at which something over 300 people turned up, the whole six of them in the, the spring of 1960, 1970. And uh, there was no doubt at all in our minds from getting the sense of those meetings that there was a receptive audience. Uh, you must expect uh, public officials in every country are wary sorts of people, and there's a certain wariness, the kind of. But you got the message that, God, this would be great if you could bring it off.
Eventually, the Devlin recommendations were accepted, in principle at least, by government. They agreed in 1970 to set up a department of the public service, and a year later, in 1971, they promised four staff units for all departments covering planning, finance, organisation and personnel. And the ARACT, or Central Ministry System, they agreed would be tried initially as an experiment in four departments. So, three Devlin recommendations were apparently well on the way. But what happened in practice? Something went wrong about the setting up of the Department of Public Service and it didn't emerge properly in, uh, uh, under legislation until 1973, but it's there. Uh, the four planning units, uh, four units, uh, staff units, uh, they're only just now beginning to be introduced. Uh, the Arab agency thing was largely... Uh, a disaster. Two departments took it seriously. The Department of Health, which already had organized itself very much on that kind of basis, and the Department of what was then Transport and Power. But the other departments just uh, don't seem to have done anything about it at all. It's hardly surprising then that this diffidence towards Devlin generated what could only be called a certain despondency. What had seemed like a strong set of proposals for change was to a large extent being casually set aside. And with this as a background, the civil service was being dragged into an even more challenging and dynamic era of the 1970s. There was an oil crisis, recession, a spate of government reports to be published and the workload expanded accordingly. Numbers increased from 36,000 civil servants in 1970 to 60,000 in 1981, an increase of over 40% in a decade. But the catch was that the problems refused to disappear. There were still structural flaws, there were organisational difficulties, and all this became even more pronounced in the 1970s and 80s. And that brings us to the problems today. As we said earlier, many of these problems can be traced to the institution's historical legacy. And not the least of these problems remains the issue of ministerial responsibility. It was a dilemma in the 60s and 70s, but is even more problematic today. We could ask, are we now still lumping ministers with simply too much responsibility? Tom Barrington. I think uh, the problems were lumping the wrong responsibilities on them. You see, it was all very well in 1924 when they devised this system of the minister as the, the only man to take the decisions. I'm almost certain that the biggest or the commonest organisation, the drafters of that legislation, uh, knew was the kind of village shop where the owner of the shop was there and he was dealing with all the decisions and buying and coping with the customers and rubbing them down and deciding who would get credit and who wouldn't and all that sort of thing. But think of Fargal Quinn trying to run Super Quinn on that basis. Now, just isn't on. And yet, we're still trying to do that kind of thing. So, ministers are being pulled away from the important business of governing the country. The view of Tom Barrington. But it's worth hearing as well the reaction of a civil servant on the ground. One former senior official who worked with three ministers is Taigo Carew. And the way he puts it is that ministers are still being snowed under with everyday work. There's no doubt about it. Ministers are overburdened and have been overburdened with day-to-day uh, -day work. Uh, and they have not, the, the system does not permit them enough time for reflection, enough time for uh, reading and studying reports of the various op policy options open to them, 
reading reports of the experience in other countries, for example, which become available directly from other uh, from our embassies abroad, or through international bodies. And of course, given his position and responsibility, there's equally a problem with delegating that responsibility back to a civil servant, isn't that correct? That is so, and th this is a, a quite a serious uh, dilemma, and uh, it is a difficulty for a minister who, after all, still has the responsibility and uh, who is naturally interested in the interests of his constituents and those who elected him. So, a clear-cut problem there with ministerial responsibility. And despite the Devlin report, there's no indication that change is on the way. Now, there's a second major problem that remains in our civil service, and it's worth examining again. It's, of course, that difficulty with manpower. The point is that the manpower dilemmas of the past linger on, and many would say that they're causing frustration amongst our civil servants. Remember, almost half of our civil service is under 30 years of age, and for the young people employed, there clearly are serious difficulties. What's wrong is that they're not getting uh, the, the, the kind of opportunities to exercise their responsibilities, to make their own careers. They, they're put into slots and they've got to wait until, until the system moves for them. before. So you get a sort of a monkish approach, a wholly non-attachment to the, the world, which was almost certainly the, the thought that was in people's minds way back in, in, in the past. But that's not the world we're in now, I'm afraid. The monks aren't quite as plentiful as they used to be. Now that's point number one, but there's more. This time relating to the promotion and mobility difficulties associated with civil service employment. As we heard earlier, the personnel structures are rigid, to say the least. So is that also posing a problem? We have a big problem there. Um, it's in process, very slow process of solution. The uh, mobility is a thing that disturbs the expectation patterns within the given departments. Uh, uh, if you've had, as we've had in, in now for 20 or 30 years, a system whereby promotion was related to the departments themselves, people had a pretty clear idea of what their career patterns were going to be. Some would know they would move up fast and others, others resign themselves to a slow movement. But if you bring mobility into it, you bring all sorts of other changes that disturb these patterns. And this anxiety has been built into staff resistance to uh, changes at, at the top like this. And I think this is a scandal, of course, but I do believe it's, it's, it's understandable. The problem is that the problem it was neglected for so long that it's extraordinarily difficult now to get any sort of movement. Now, some movement is beginning, but it's only a very small part of the well, again, it's worth hearing the view of a civil servant on that point. After all, they're the people who've been restricted, or indeed some might say sheltered, by the rigid structure of promotion and mobility. Once again, then, Taig O'Carroll. Well, with regard to mobility, uh, we have to take account of, I suppose, the fact that the civil service is a career service. People enter the service in the belief that they are embarking on a career they see opportunities for advancement. Uh, it, it's, it would be unfair to say that everybody is thinking about promotion every day of the week, but uh, they do believe that there are certain opportunities which should be open for them. Uh, there is a grading structure, fairly rigid grading structure in the civil service. There is, for instance, the main administrative and executive 
grading system. Uh, there are what is called departmental grades, for example, the, in the revenue service and other services. And thirdly, there is the professional and technical area. And these people have traditionally moved in their own spheres. And uh, we're talking here about the question of having one big service where there would be interchangeability and where people would be promoted from one area into higher positions in another. Uh, one very specific problem here relates to the professional area. And uh, while it is, it is practicable to think in terms of a professional officer being promoted to a higher position in the administration, it is very difficult to visualize somebody uh, in administration without professional or technical skills or competence being promoted to a comparable situation in the professional area. This is just an illustration of the uh, problems which exist in trying to promote greater mobility within the service itself. Clearly then, even the civil servants agree that a lack of mobility is posing a problem. And again, unfortunately, it seems that little is being done to find a suitable remedy. Now, there's one other vital problem to examine, and that's the bad public image that many might say the civil service suffers from today. Should that problem exist, then clearly it's quite serious, because, after all, civil servants are a bridge between the public and the state, and their essential role is the practical implementation and application of government policy. So, the view of Tom Barrington. Uh, certainly, a lack of sufficient concern with the relationships of the public is, uh, I think, a a, a mark of our of our uh, civil service. I don't find myself very excited about this notion of image and burnishing images and so on. It's, I don't think this is the. But what, where the problem is, as I see it, is that we haven't got systems by which the citizen who is who needs information, the citizen who has a grievance the citizen who wants to play a bigger part in the in the life of the community and so on we don't have these systems uh, and we're we therefore have a gulf between ourselves and 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 the citizen the who are our masters and then uh, suspicion grows up and doubt and then you have this extraordinary brokerage thing work going on with the 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 TDs and uh, trying to bridge this gap well, Tom Barrington conceding there that a problem exists. But again, for the view of the civil servant, Tygo Kerul. Of course I accept a problem, and uh, the, the Department of the Public Service, in the training programmes which it has devised for uh, young civil servants, is trying to get over this by, uh, by training them in, in how to handle inquiries from the public. And also the personnel managers of departments are expected to assign to these jobs uh, people who have the personality for handling the public. But nevertheless, you must accept without the greatest success so far. I think uh, that's what most members of the public would feel. No? I like to think that the situation is improving. Uh, we must also bear in mind, by the way, that um, a very high proportion of civil servants in jobs of that kind are very, very young because of the big intake into the service in the late 1970s. So, three basic problems there. Firstly, the difficulties for ministers in coping with their responsibilities. Secondly, a structural problem of mobility and promotion. And thirdly, a poor public image.
Well, Devlin, as you heard earlier, had a lot to say about these, but clearly not enough has been done. But of course, the question is why this should be so. For a start, some people might feel that the civil service has simply become too big, too slow and too laborious to accommodate change. But is that allegation correct, Jolie? It is too slow and too laborious. I don't think it's too big because although it has grown a lot and uh, is big by national terms, it's not a big civil service by international terms, uh, there is no reason why size, qua size, uh, should be advanced as um, an excuse for the failure to provide uh, a more efficient decision-making process. Uh, if we fall back on size as an explanation, in my view, that's a cop-out. Uh, it would be true to say the structures have not adjusted to the growth in size. And if you insist on keeping the structures absolutely rigid, you can say the size is too big for the existing structures but it is not too big in absolute terms, and it would be nonsense to suggest that it is. Well, if size isn't the problem, then we could ask, what is? For example, could we say that our civil service has become just too conservative? Tom Barrington. Uh, I think we're a very conservative people, generally, and I think that one of the great things about the civil service is that it's, it reflects us, the kind of people we are. But we have this feeling, this thing about being conservative, and I think we have a, a reluctance to kind of uh, take a, an intellectual view of our problem that by thinking you can add to your stature of several cubits if you, if you, in, 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 in the public service world. The trouble is we, we're not, we're too problem oriented rather than, than uh, as it were, program oriented. And it's that, that's the jump I think that has to be made from being a small service and part of what Winston Churchill called a group of ill-mannered agricultural counties into a, a, a modern a, a state, part of a great European experiment and so on. So part of the problem explained there. But there is one final angle worth exploring, and that's the power of the institution itself. If there's one distinctive mark of our civil service, it's that it's firmly entrenched at the centre of political and economic decision-making in this country. So let's ask if our civil service has simply become too powerful. I don't think so. I think what um, I would be inclined to think is that the civil service doesn't realise the extent of its own power. Uh, I don't mean that it should be uh, oppressing the people or anything, but that what goes on within the civil service is of crucial importance to the development of the whole country. And if the uh, uh, civil service could gear itself to the way John Layden was able to gear the Department of Supplies to tackle the problems of, during the war years, that if that kind of spirit could be, and intelligence and commitment could be applied to the very large number of problems we have now, then uh, things would be, uh, we wouldn't be in the troubles we're in now. Well, in summary, the view there is that we need a new spirit of enthusiasm. And the earlier point, of course, was that we require more policy orientation. But while these two points explain some of the problems, it's a little more difficult to recommend the steps of reform that now need to be taken. That's the bottom line for our civil service today, namely what remedial measures are now urgently needed. First, the view of Tom Barrington. If I were asked that uh, a few years ago, I would have said without any doubt, uh, 
a promotion and mobility policy to make sure that only those people got, who got into the top jobs were people who were well capable of governing a modern country or assisting in the government of a modern country. Uh, so that young people would have the stimulus to make their own careers and develop themselves and so on. Now I'm inclined to think that the situation is so bad that the very first thing is somehow or other to recruit a corps of planners within, within all the departments so that a, a, a higher degree of rationality will be brought, uh, brought into the day-to-day -day operations and the, so, and, uh, of the departments and that they will be uh, uh, encouraged to look ahead uh, to deal with the long-term problems in some kind of clear-cut way. Two points there, most importantly the need for a commitment to planning and a new promotion and mobility policy. Well, now to Joe Lee. What's the main priority from his point of view? Uh, we have to devise structures, in my view, which permit problems to be diagnosed, to be conceptualised properly and then to be tackled by the best, if you like, hit team within the civil service and perhaps drawing on non-civil service expertise also. Uh, Identifying the problems is itself a challenge which our present civil service is not adequately um, trained to do and which the structures do not permit it to do. So there has to be basic thinking about structures which permit identification of problems and then solution of problems by the most appropriate, best qualified team irrespective of their institutional base within the civil service. And the main point there is the need for identification of problems and the appropriate structures and crack teams who could tackle them properly. But there's more, again from Joe Lee. This time the recommendation concerning the delegation of responsibilities within our civil service. I think the time has to come when, through the allocation of specific responsibilities, the public allocation of specific responsibilities to specific civil servants, that the success or failure of individual civil servants will uh, become much more evident. The lack of accountability at the moment, I think, is crippling the morale of those civil servants who want to be able to get up and say, look, we are doing a good job. We are working extremely hard. We are working intelligently. Uh, there's no recognition, or there's very little recognition, for achievement, uh, any more than there is any serious penalty for non-achievement. Now, we are moving towards a stage, in my view anywhere, where the society has to know who is accountable for particular decisions. And ministerial responsibility has a now become, I think I used the term a facade before, now whether that was true in the 20s or not, it is certainly true now. Ministerial responsibility is a facade behind which faceless civil servants, and I don't use faceless in a pejorative sense, it's just a factual statement, faceless civil servants can now avoid responsibility and avoid accountability in particular for the consequences of their advice. So something has to be done about that? In my view, yes. Clear enough. But now to Taigo Karul for the view from within the civil service itself. The focus for his first priority is slightly different. In this case, it concerns the burden of responsibilities on ministers. I think it is very important that ministers should be given as much time as possible for policy matters and that they should not be uh, too distracted with day-to-day -day work. As part of this uh, change uh, it is necessary to have a much improved flow of information between the fields 
services and the minister and the minister should also have the opportunity of personally meeting the heads of these services from time to time uh, so that he can become acquainted with what's going on uh, on the ground. A plea there for relieving ministers from the burden of everyday work. But that in itself raises a question. Surely it could only be accomplished with the delegation of responsibility and power. The idea would be that once the minister had approved of certain policies, once he had got from the doll the funds necessary for carrying these policies out, once he had approved the broad programme, the idea would be, as indeed happens in certain state boards at the moment, that the people responsible would presumably be civil servants of fairly high rank, that they then, or a particular civil servant in charge of a scheme, would be responsible for the operation of that scheme. He would be identified with that scheme. He would explain difficulties to the media and to the public and he would generally be answerable and he would be known as the person responsible for the running of that service in a day-to-day -day basis. Now, there's one last recommendation to consider as well. This concerns the quality of staffing and the need for giving civil servants some outside experience. Again, on this point, Tygo Carul. Well, a priority certainly would be to enable civil servants fairly early on in their career to acquire experience of areas outside their own areas. For example, in state boards, in, uh, in the universities perhaps, in business. I think that this would be very helpful to civil servants uh, if they could have the opportunity to spend a year or two of in, uh, outside the civil service um, Apart from learning something, they would also uh, get acquainted with people in business, which would be helpful for consultation arrangements and for their work later on. And with that, the list of recommendations is complete. In short, the need for more delegation of responsibility and power, the need for crack units or teams in the tackling of problems, and a requirement for less rigid promotion and mobility structures. And there's also a plea for more planning and for more outside experience and training for civil service personnel. Well, indeed, it all sounds a bit familiar. In fact, a familiarity that can be traced back to the 1960s and that Devlin report. So does it all just add up to the need to reconsider the Devlin recommendations? My own view about this is that... Uh, I, I think the Devlin analysis is reasonably correct and I think the proposals are reasonably sustainable. But I'm not for saying they are the only possible ways of tackling problems. And if other people have better ideas, for God's sake, let them be produced. But what's happening now is that the Devlin analysis is being given some sort of lip service but is not being applied in practice. And the nothing else is being put in its place. We just cannot continue to drift on in this way. And that sentiment is echoed by many observers of our civil service today. The fact critics say is that the problems continue and they argue that they're likely to worsen. They point to the future where it's clear that the demands will be greater, the problems more complicated and the need for imagination and efficiency more pronounced than ever before. And it's an era that will require a greater and a better response from our civil servants. Few would dispute that something needs to be done, but it's finally worth asking if anything is likely to happen. 
So, on this, the 25th anniversary of the Institute for Public Administration, the last word on that goes to Tom Barrington. Administrative reform is not a very successful operation in any country. Uh, nearly every country during the 60s and 70s had commissions for uh, changing and for improving the, the public service, but uh, very little has happened anywhere, unfortunately. Uh, I think that doesn't mean that we should sit on our hands and do nothing about it. I think that somebody has got to take this seriously. After all, government is not only a question of the politicians, very important the politicians, but government is a partnership between politics and administration. And the two partners have got to be working up to the limit of their of their uh, capacity to get this government out of out of this country out of the out of the mess that it's in. Uh, we had a, a good period, perhaps 10 years from 58 to 68. We kind of slowed down from 68 to 72 or so. And uh, now we've been going downhill for the past 10 years. We've just got to arrest that decline and, and try and bring a lift again. And I think the uh, public service, and specifically the civil service, it has a key role to play in this, in this uh, just as it did in the, in the 1950s. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.